0: You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Main Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program.
1: I think music can often be very healing for human beings, and so I'm always aware of that when I'm working on records, even when I'm doing a... A heavy metal record, I'm thinking, well, there's probably some really depressed 13-year-old who is getting a lot of healing from hearing this record. I'm always thinking about that when I'm working on records. You have to be better. You, know, you have to be good to entertain
2: an audience. You know, you have to like know what you're doing. You know, and more importantly, you have to like feel good about what you're doing. You know, so I think it just comes from like a, a confidence in myself that I feel good about what I'm singing about and how I'm performing. And I hope that the audience that comes across to the audience too.
0: Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors: Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of REMAX Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belayo, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 187, Music Mastery, airing for the first time on Sunday, April 12, 2015. Music in Maine is alive and well on many levels. We have long had talented musicians, but we also have those whose work involves fine-tuning the music once it has been recorded. Today, we speak with preeminent mastering engineer Bob Ludwig, whose Grammy-winning work is recognized the world over. We also speak with musician and award-winning singer-songwriter Sam Chase, who is making his mark on the main music scene. Thank you for joining us. It's always interesting for me to um, hear about an individual over the years and think, I wonder if I'll ever meet that person. Uh, because they're doing something pretty amazing that not many people in Maine are doing. And today I get to meet one of these individuals, so I'm a little starstruck, I must admit. This is Bob Ludwig, (laughs) he's he's laughing at me already. Bob Ludwig is a Grammy-winning mastering engineer who has been in the music business for over 40 years and has mastered countless gold and platinum records. He has worked on records for Neil Diamond, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, Pearl Jam, and many more. And Frozen. And f- and Frozen! Oh my goodness, I can't believe that we've forgotten that. I can break out in song right now. Um, this let is... it go,
1: let it go. <laughs> See, now you're
3: just going to do it for us. I love it. This is It's so interesting that you have created this um, space for yourself here in Maine, of all places, but you're working with people all over the world, really.
1: Yeah, we're really lucky. went to the uh, Eastman School of Music in Rochester and uh, when I was finishing up my master's degree, uh, Phil Ramone, who's a very famous music producer and engineer, came up to teach the first recording workshop there, and I was his kind of assistant, and at the end he asked me if I wanted to come work for him in New York, and I'd been playing trumpet with the uh, Utica Symphony Orchestra, and but I was also in the recording department at Eastman, so, um, and even in high school I couldn't decide if I wanted to go into engineering or to um, music, and... Uh, thank goodness my high school music teacher convinced me to go to Eastman. It was the most fantastic experience for me. But at any rate, uh, I'd been playing with the Utica Symphony Orchestra enough to know that <clears throat> that I was ready for a change. And so when Phil asked me to come, I decided I was going to do it. Because it's the old saying, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And um, so I worked very hard at uh, a Recording Studios, where I first started. And then uh, several years later, a new mastering, an independent mastering facility was established in New York called Sterling Sound, and I was their first employee. <clears throat> and that was where I did uh, Led Zeppelin II and Houses of Holy and uh, Jimi Hendrix and all those people. And uh, and then uh, Sterling Sound was bought by a public company, which... Uh, started another studio mastering studio called master Disc. and so they were both owned by the same public company and at one point um it worked for me to move from sterling over to master Disc. and so and then i was there for many years and then for a long time well for my whole career when i was at sterling a lot of people thought i owned the company which i didn't and at master Disc, people thought i owned the company which i didn't and so uh, i finally was convinced to uh, start my own studio and we had a lot of thoughts, Gail and I, uh, my wife, um, were thinking like, gee, we really can't go more north of 96th Street in New York <laughs> and, and had all these concerns. And then once we decided, well, we could do that, then we thought, well, oh, maybe we should go to Woodstock or maybe we should go to Stamford, Connecticut. And then because my folks lived uh, up in Stockton Springs, uh, my sister still lives up there now. And um, we'd been visiting them for many, many years. We decided that uh, Maine would be... The perfect place to uh, to start a studio, because um, the actual design of the studio that I wanted to do uh, demanded 20 foot high ceilings, which, like in New York City, if you're in a high-rise, which almost everybody is, um, th- that's out of the question to have anything that high. That wasn't super expensive in the multi-million dollar range, you know, to build something like that. But in Maine, uh, we, we found um, uh, a place that's now by the Weston Hotel, and Joe Wishcamper, uh owned the, the spot, and he was uh, w- ready to sell one of the commercial condominiums, and <clears throat> we looked at all the other spaces, and we decided we wanted his space. <laughs> and um, so he agreed, being the good salesperson he was, and so we had a lot of... Uh, A lot of the infrastructure was pre-built, but there were this huge, huge area that had uh, over 20-foot high ceilings that uh, was the perfect place to build the studio. So We we kind of uh, uh, had this great uh, acoustical architect uh, do the conceptual design for the studio. So before we moved up here, we knew how big a space we needed to be in. So we looked at all kinds of places, the old Porches Building, which is now the main college of art. And... Uh, many other <clears throat> buildings in, in uh, Portland and found that this was the best spot. and So, uh, yeah, it worked out great, and I've never, ever regretted maybe the time we had that ice storm in the 90s <laughs> when all the infrastructure collapsed. Except for that, uh, I've, I've never regretted uh, moving up here. Yeah, it's really so beautiful.
3: How did you and Gail meet?
1: Gail and I met... Uh, around 1970, uh, Gail lived on a uh, commune in upper New York State. She's Canadian from uh, Montreal and um, she ended up in this commune uh, called ZBS and um, she was uh, um, married there to another uh, guy there and uh, um, they used to do a thing called um, um, Artist-in-Residence which... um, they had a little recording studio there, and Gills, a recording engineer and producer. And they had people like uh, uh, David Tudor, Phil Glass, and Laurie Anderson, and other artists like that would come up to do uh, these recordings that were funded by the um, New York State Council of the Arts. And um, my cousin happened to be the, uh, the treasurer uh, of the place, he had come uh, from uh, out in Vietnam and uh, uh, was the treasurer, and I came up to visit him several times and uh, met Gail there just as a matter of meeting everyone there. Uh, it was a pretty large group. And um, then years later, uh, when the con- <clears throat> when the commune was kind of folding up, ZBS still exists. They still do radio shows there, but uh, uh, everybody had left, and so it was just Gail and her then husband and... Uh, um, and she decided they were going to be splitting up. And uh, my cousin said, be sure to go see Bob in New York uh, if you're going to look for a job. So uh, I was at Master Disc and Gail walked into the studio. And it was one of those really magical things. It was like, oh, wow, I don't remember Gail being like that, you know. And, <laughs> and apparently she had the same thing. And so I, and we had lunch in the studio and um, started dating after that. And it was... Uh, It's been very magical.
3: And you've been working together for most of that time since you... Uh, Well,
1: since we started Gateway. So um, I met Gail in, uh, what was that, 81, I guess it was, yep. And we got married in 84. So it wasn't until uh, 92 that we started building Gateway. And we opened our doors in January of 93, so it was... um, uh, a, a while there, that uh, she didn't work for me. She was, uh, she did a degree at Fordham during that time, and um, <clears throat> she was Laurie Anderson's uh, kind of personal assistant there, and had other jobs, and so it was, um, it was all really good.
3: So, what's it like to have this be such a collaborative process? She's now the the manager of your studio of your of Gateway. And you are obviously this essential part. But how did? What's it like to work together?
1: Oh, it's really good, and it's it's uh, easy because um, I'm sequestered in my windowless studio for uh, 12 hours a day, <laughs> and she's uh, um, out in the front office uh, with all the other engineers and uh, the, the uh, people that uh, schedule me. Uh, uh, Rachel Higgins is this wonderful woman who schedules me, and she answers all the phone calls that I couldn't possibly answer, and uh, takes care of things. And Gail keeps everything uh, sane. It's, it can be a very insane kind of environment with everybody wanting something now, you know. Especially with the internet. <clears throat> when we uh, started Gateway, we were figuring that um, uh, we do every do everything by FedEx because the internet really hadn't happened yet. And then when the internet started happening, we started getting more and more projects over the internet. In fact, it was a Mariah Carey record that was the very first project where she was in Italy. Her producers, uh, Terry Jam and Lewis, were in Minnesota. And everything came in to me electronically over the internet, uh, the mixes. And so we'd send something in from Minnesota. Uh, I'd master it and send it to Mariah in Capri, Italy where she was. And and that was the very first session I did where not one physical piece of anything came in or out of the studio. It was all ones and zeros coming in and out of the studio. So that was a big uh, event to do that record. So that was was really quite something. It's interesting
3: to think about that, that you have all these names that you've worked with, and I'm sure you've met many of them, Um, but you've also just had the opportunity to kind of work with data, to, to have work with pieces of that have come from people sounds that have come from people and people's instruments and to try to fit them all together
1: well mastering is the final step in other words uh after they've recorded it and they mix it down in a a good studio usually with some the people we work with are usually world-class mixers then the question is can it sound as any better than it sounds because it's very competitive out there if you're in the uh, music marketplace trying to sell your music and make it sound great and so sometimes what we do, um, we don't have to do too much because it's already sounding amazing. <clears throat> and the good news is if, we do, if something comes in sounding really amazing, if we do the smallest thing to it, it sounds like we've done a lot. So that's good news for us. And then the kind of the average project that we get now sounds almost worse than it ever has in my whole career because of the collapse of the record industry there's no more budgets for most of the records. So uh, people are forced to work in studios or be recorded by their neighbor who just bought a Pro Tools system and thinks they know what to do with it. And So the average uh, mix comes in sounding pretty ratty. And so uh, the mastering step, which is <clears throat> trying to make it just sound as good as possible, can really make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear, so to speak, and do something really dramatically better to what what we've been given. So we kind of win in both ways. If it sounds good, we can make it sound a little bit better, and the people are thrilled. And if it sounds horrible, just to make it sound normal makes people thrilled. But uh, but we do work with a lot of people that are in a very heavy state of paranoia and <laughs> and high expectations. So Gail really is able to, um, and, and Rachel and Tom that uh, do the scheduling, are really able to deal beautifully with these people. So,
3: Give me examples of some of the things that you... You would do with something that came in sounding either really great or really ratty like what is it that as you're mastering what are you tweaking
1: well like last year um, i got a grammy for album of the year for the daft punk record and uh, thomas from the group um, came in with uh, uh, the engineer who'd mixed that record mick gazowski and mick and i go back a long way he uh, comes from rochester new york and when I was at Eastman, Mick was the young super engineer at the local studio in Rochester. And <clears throat> so I got to meet him while I was at Eastman. So I've known each, him since the late 60s. And and he became a world-class engineer. He did all the, uh, in fact, he mixed a lot of those Mariah Carey records. And so he mixed the Daft Punk record out in Conway in uh, Los Angeles. And um, he did, of course, a great job on it. But the group was just like insanely... Uh, interested in the finest detail like there's no detail that they overlooked i used to say that with the collapse of the industry there are no more million dollar budget records but this was one that i don't know for sure but it had to have been over that you know normally you mix to either pro tools or to analog tape in this case he mixed to five different formats he mixed to um, a thing called direct stream digital which is a uh, super high resolution digital he mixed a high resolution Uh, Normal digital on Pro Tools, and then he mixed to uh, three different kinds of tape machines with either half-inch wide tape or quarter-inch tape, running at 30 inches a second or running at 15 inches a second. And then, uh, fortunately, Thomas and uh, his partner there uh, listened to most of those formats and decided, mostly in advance, which one sounded best for each particular song. But then, at the when we met at the studio. we still went through that exercise of listening to the different formats and choosing which one sounded the best and so it's just a lot of detail and a lot of time spent doing that comparisons and then when we started mastering it uh, he had apparently had gone somewhere else before and was disappointed because it sounded kind of distorted and didn't uh, meet his vision and so i um, uh, said well you don't need to make a record that sounds crazy loud, which you want as quality. And so we made one that had maintained all the dynamics that he had done in the mixes. And so he was really thrilled about that. And then once we had a baseline set as to how good the record could sound, and of course when I'm listening to it, if something sounded a little dull, we have equalizers um, that we can brighten things with, or if it needed more bass or less bass and needed more mid-range, we could add that. um, most of the uh, equalizers we have are similar to the bass and treble controls you have on your preamp, except we can choose any frequency in the spectrum and boost or cut it at any uh, sharpness or or broadness. So once we had the, the basic record, then there was a decision that, well, he wanted to come back a little bit more and make it a little bit more louder and be a little bit more present and in your face sounding. So there's different compressors that can be used to um to make a record louder and so we examined all those and then we ended up mastering the entire record with one and then the entire record with another one and it was rather endless and thomas came back several times it's so interesting because i have to confess when the session was booked i had never heard of daft punk Uh, i didn't know about their work with tron and all that and that they were very successful and so when he came to the studio he wasn't without a w- without the helmet that they always wear they Daft Punk the group always wears a helmet in public and so I didn't know anything about that and it turns out it was a big deal that I'd seen him without the helmet you know <laughs> but he's just a very nice guy actually he's very particular and I completely respect that and I'm I'm right there with the artist you know I'm I'll dig down his Deep in any level of subtlety that you want, you know, if you've got the time to do it. And so I was uh, happy to do that. Plus, something about that Daft Punk music um, had a lot of life energy in it. And um, I noticed that working on that music, I always felt uplifted at the end of the session rather than tired from it. So there was something uh, special that those guys created. So that was very, very good and then after several months uh of working on that record uh off and on like they would do it and then sometimes they'd call me up and do several things and then thomas would come back again and book another session and he'd fly here from either paris or los angeles and we'd spend time together refining this or that or changing a mix or whatever we were doing and then we finished in december and then the record wasn't due out until may and so um I taught Thomas how to do some engineering things, and he bought uh, one of the pieces of gear that I had, and I knew he was going to go to France and fool with it some more, you know take my work and then work with it some more and so uh he did that and so when i'm um it's one of the the only time in my life, and ironically it was a Grammy that i I shared it with another mastering engineer uh from France who uh helped them do the the very final extra compression that they added at the end. So that's a brief rundown of uh, you know what we do, but and in, in other cases, um, you know, we do a lot of um, like when we get to hear a record. Normally, the sequence hasn't been chosen, uh, let alone the title of the record or the artwork. So there's lots and lots of records that I've done that um, people ask me if I've done them, and I say I don't know. And the reason was that the record wasn't titled when I did it. So if they sang me a, told me a title of the songs or sang a little bit of it, I'd say, oh yeah, I did that, or or no, I don't think I did that, you know that kind of thing. And so and that remains to this day. I still don't. Most of the records I'm doing right now, I don't know what the titles are, or or the, or I mean the the title of the album or what the cover looks like. Although sometimes with the internet, the groups will post that on their site. Like sometimes we learn more from going on the internet and seeing the group's uh, website than we do from the record label because. Everything we do is usually very secret, like the Daft Punk record was just a total secret for over half a year. The same thing with some of the Radiohead records I did. I do a record and, with them, and then the producer, uh, uh, Nigel Goodrich, would say, well, it's all set, but we're just going to uh, sit on this for a while. And so, uh, you know, we know that this incredible records there out waiting for the world to hear, and all our staff has to knows that they can't talk about any of the projects that we're doing and we can't have interns or job shadowing because i know we don't give many tours either because every time we do a tour we got to hide everything so people don't see what we're working on and
0: so it kind of goes that way so (laughs) love maine radio was brought to you by bangor savings bank for over 150 years Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com.
3: We at Love Maine Radio enjoy a special relationship with Apothecary by Design. Join us in the offices of Maine Magazine for Seeing Maine, Profiles of Resilience, which features photography by smith Goldney, capturing the story, struggles, and victories that form the changing face of HIV and AIDS in Maine. This photography exhibit will be available from March 27th to April 24th at 75 Market Street, the offices of Maine Magazine. We hope you take the time to stop by. What was it like for you to go f- from being a player, a trumpet player, mm. to being, I guess, a mastering master of mastering, <laughs> I guess?
1: Well, um, as I said, I was finishing up my master's degree, and I was simultaneously uh, the first trumpet player in the Utica New York Symphony Orchestra. And uh, that was super exciting to do that. And, and one of the things was that as a trumpet player, one of the uh, my goals in, in the far future was... To play the uh, the very high trumpet parts in the Bach B minor Mass in the Utica Symphony, all of a sudden one day they says, "Well, we're going to do the Bach B minor Mass." I'm going really. I wasn't ready for this for ten years, and (laughs) and uh, so my trumpet teacher uh, loaned me the piccolo trumpet that Eastman owned, and I did nothing but play that trumpet for a month and really got to learn it and. Uh, we had several performances in Utica, and it was broadcast on the radio, and um, it was very successful and the whole thing, and um, and then when it was over, I, I really had this feeling of like, uh, wow, I just accomplished this big goal that I had set for myself and wasn't expecting to have it happen so fast, and I think that's when why when Phil Ramon asked me if I wanted to come work for him, I was more uh, receptive to that than I might have been, you know, and so I uh, left uh, Eastman and um, went to A uh, and R Recording, which was on Forty uh, Eighth uh, Street in New York City, and it was a very famous studio that had already done work with uh, Bert Brackrack and Dion Warwick, and oh, they've done they'd done lots of records by then. And uh, as so, I was Phil's assistant, so I would do uh, setups in the studio, and uh, which was great because I got to um, meet all the artists as this. Setting up the mics and all that. And I met any uh, guest engineers that worked there. And um, we also did work for ad agencies. So I got to, uh, just like Mad Men, you know, th- these are exactly those years that Mad Men is on, actually. Um, I got to meet um, all the major. Music uh, directors from the different ad agencies in New York—you know, Foot, Cold, and Colin Bending, and Ogilvy, Mathers, and all the other big ad agencies—and saw how insane that was. Their, <laughs> their whole life. I mean, I remember we we're doing a Noxima commercial, and they, the, the there were three different people that would argue as to how to pronounce Noxima was Noxima or Noxima, you know, and. <laughs> Uh So, I quickly realized that i didn't want to do that <laughs> and um and then, uh, as part of the regular training for an apprentice at uh a n r everyone had to learn how to do disc cutting and uh everyone did a stint in that because you to make it, to be a really good mixer, especially back then before uh vinyl disc technology had evolved to where it did in the uh the mid seventies and where it ended <laughs> um up until then uh, you really had to know the limitations of disc cutting in order to do a good a good mix on a record you had to make sure that the s- singer wasn't too sibilant and because that's very difficult to cut onto disc uh when I got into the disc cutting thing I was like uh, genetically predisposed to it somehow uh this attention to the most minutia you know the mi- minute minutiae, uh and having patience where you could cut a record for 20 minutes and uh, the vacuum stopped sucking up the part of the record that uh, it cut and it would go all over the record and uh, would ruin everything and you have to redo it again and you had to not lose your patience. And so I was very patient and um, and for some reason I just gravitated to it and very shortly, because I knew how to read scores from the Eastman School of Music, uh, uh, A&R Recording started attracting clients they never would have attracted, like Nonesuch Records. And Nonesuch Records became my one of my oldest and, they're, to this day, a client of mine. And so I've been working with them since the late 60s and still work with Bob Hurwitz. And I work with uh, Steve Reich and all the other great artists that are on, um, on Nonesuch. So... Um, this is a really long story, I had to get, <laughs> how I got it from the trumpet. So when you, trumpet is not like piano where, um, you know, if you're sick, you can just go back and play chords and it sounds nice. With trumpet, as soon as you're sick, even for a day, you, your embouchure, you're, the way you're, you uh, uh, can put the mouthpiece against your mouth and blow into it, those muscles get uh, weak very quickly. So you have to kind of do long tones and spend a lot of time getting your, your tone back, even if it's a short amount of time. So... Once you give it up even for a week, your embouchure goes very quickly. And then um, then when you pick it up, it's very unsatisfying. You have amazing technique, but you sound like a fifth grader for a while, you know. So um, uh, I just, and I was having so much fun doing the recording, especially as an assistant, because, you know, he'd do setups for the Vienna Boys Choir with, you know, a zillion kids in this room and singing Joy to the World, you know. so uh, I, I i felt and then the other side of the coin is uh, two other things uh, when uh, i came into a and r i mean this was um, the, in the days of four track recording eight track was just coming in and um, the studio musicians that they chose were just the most crack-a-jack, um musicians on the planet i swear I worked at AR for six months before I heard any brass player miss a note. And this is sight reading, all the charts. I swear I never heard them miss one note in six months. And and there was a you know, the level that these guys played at was so high, I knew that uh, you know, my, my bar had now gotten set so high, I knew I could never do that, you know. So giving up the trumpet wasn't so hard.
3: I like it. I think it's it's interesting. i just for me to think about. I mean, there's such different parts of your sensibility. You know, you have your embouchure and your mouth and your musician training, and then you have, you know, the the ear training that goes along with musician training. But just it's just it's different. It's a different way of approaching music.
1: Yeah, uh, as an engineer, um, you know, even though I was in the recording department to get into that fine uh ability to listen very very carefully there was um two clients in particular um that uh really trained me when i, I used to work uh, when i was at a I used to cut records for enoch light who um uh, when hi-fi first came out he had these records called persuasive percussion where uh, to highlight the stereo there'd be the bongos on the left and then the bongos on the right and oh it was what was called ping pong stereo so that you know everything was they were trying to do as much surround sound as possible with two two speakers and but his daughter uh, Julie Clagis, um who was the producer on the records uh had this immense attention to detail and she really helped stretch my ears and made me focus as to what she was hearing and then later on the very famous songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller um, who did, you know, um, Hound Dog and all the Coasters material and Yakety Yak and all those records Uh, I did a Peggy Lee record that they did and uh, those two were so tuned into what they did it was just amazing and So those two clients really taught me how to listen very, very carefully.
3: As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes, those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we are doing, and dream a little about our business futures. Not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com
0: This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com.
3: People who are familiar with the main, and in fact, I'll say, northeast New England music scene, are becoming increasingly familiar with Sam Chase. I know Sam Chase because he happens to be the fiancé of the managing editor of Maine Magazine, Kelly Clinton. Sam is a guitarist, drummer, and award-winning singer-songwriter, originally from the South Shore of Massachusetts, who is now based in Portland. He was named top songwriter at the 2010 Connecticut Folk Festival and is currently working on his third studio album. He has shared the stage with some of the finest artists in his genre, including Mark Cohn, John Gorka, Laurie McKenna, Ellis Paul, and Jonathan Edwards. He'll be performing once again at this year's Kenny Bongport Festival on June eighth. So great to have you here today.
2: Thanks, Lisa. Psyched to be here.
3: Uh, the last time I heard you perform, you were at the art gallery right across the street That's here, right. mm-hmm. and uh, we were celebrating a different sort of art. Your genre, though, your art is music.
2: Yeah, yeah. I got an acoustic guitar, kind of mixed up with some blues and folk and country and rootsy kind of thing. You know, it's a it's a big kind of mixture of. A lot of the influences and artists that I like, you know, but like acoustic based.
3: You grew up on the south shore of Massachusetts?
2: Yep, in a town called Situate. You would know about Situate because it's always on the news anytime there's a major storm. And I was surprised that you probably you may have seen my house because the house I grew up in is right on the beach in, in Minot. And every time there's a nor'easter or a hurricane, they always show the waves crashing and the houses and like devastation. And it's funny growing up, we used to just watch the... Our, our house was sort of the only house that was set back a little bit from the water. So we'd sit in the porch and you just watch the water, the ocean, like, roll through the yard. And it could be scary for someone who didn't know what was going on, but for us, like, we're so used to it that you just know that the ocean would go through the yard and wouldn't touch the house. So, yeah, that's situated. It's a beautiful town, but it's, uh, during the storms, it's always, like, the kind of place to be for the news... The newspeople.
3: That's intense.
2: It is. It is. It's fun though. It's it makes for interesting storm days. <laughs> I don't think my dad likes the fact that you know the, he has to get rid of the rocks every year. But
3: how did you get interested in music?
2: Um, I've always been interested in music. I definitely come from a musical family. Like my parents used to sing at different events. You know, like it was either like a Christmas Eve mass or something or a friend's. Uh, party or something like that. But my brother was also a big influence for me. He was nine years older than me and he played music. He went to Berkeley. Um, uh, my uncle was a, is a guitar player. He went to Berkeley back in the seventies and, you know, I just, I had the bug early, you know, I wanted to play drums so bad, you know, I just like would bang on, you know, I couldn't wait to get my first drum set, you know, and, uh, my a lot of my siblings i'm the youngest of five kids and everyone took piano lessons so i took piano lessons starting at eight and got into the drums when i was around 10 and kind of followed my brother's footsteps when i was about 12 with guitar so i just i don't know i love music always wanted to do it always had the bug
3: i'm thinking about having i come from the i've come from a family of 10 and i can't imagine having a child in my family who wanted to be a drummer so badly that he was running around banging on things on purpose. I wonder how your mom felt about that.
2: Well, to have a drummer as a child, you have to have a room for the drums, I you see. know. That's kind of step number 1. So, we had the third floor and my dad like soundproofed that baby up, you know. And you could still hear it, but at least it 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 was a place for me to go and not it not be like, you know, in people's faces when I'm banging on the cymbals and making loud noises up there. So, um, you know, it's cool though. I, you know, my parents have always been super supportive of me um, as, as a musician, but I also play in a band with my parents. And it's me, my parents, my brother, and we have our bass player that plays with both Matt and I and a three piece horn section. So, you know, not every kid wants to necessarily hang out with their parents, but I actually play in a band with my parents. So they've, you know, they're a big supporter of me, and we've always had a really close relationship. So it's actually fun to be able to sing and harmonize and play music with your parents, too.
3: I love that. I think about when I'm in the car with my daughters, and we're singing because they sing and I sing, and we're harmonizing, and it's just very informal. But it's such a great, like, to be able to, like, do that. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about that that's just really special.
2: Well, and music is not just meant to be, like... You know, make money at. I mean, like I, I do it as for a living, but it's it's like this therapeutic, fun way of communicating. You know, and I, you know, in addition to playing music, I teach a lot of music lessons. So it's like you try to teach, you try to get through to kids a different different way. Sometimes kids pick up on it; they have a natural talent. Other times, kids, you know, struggle with that mechanically rhythm. They don't have that rhythm thing. You know, so you gotta try to f- try to like find it for them, you know? And sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes people, you know, don't last. But other times it's like you get through to certain people and all of a sudden you see that person, you know, they come in the next week and they've learned something completely on their own. And like now you know that they've kind of had that, and a little light like went off or something and they have that bug now, you know? And that, that to me is cool because I always had that, you know? So like to try to get somebody else to like experience that, you know? I think that is that's it's fun.
3: Yeah, that's pretty great. I, I think about um, I'm often people will say to me, well, I'm not artistic, so I can't do art or I'm not I don't I'm not good with languages, so I can't speak French or I, I'm not good with math. But but I always enjoy thinking about, well, maybe your brain isn't naturally inclined that way, but maybe there's a natural inclination of your brain that will help you understand art, music, math in a new way. Mm. So, the way that you're talking about, so, you know, trying to get through to somebody's brain, kind of like taking an end run.
2: Yeah, I mean, because music is, it can be a bunch of different things, you know what I mean? Um, For me, I kind of base it on the instruments that I play. So, it would be piano, guitar, drums, you know, any kind of percussion. So, like, I always tell people if they're going to start taking music or, you know, if they're going to, they're trying to figure out what to play first, you know, I always, I'm like, okay play piano because piano is like just this fundamental instrument and you know who doesn't like sitting around the piano singing songs at a party I mean it's like it's always when somebody's like at that moment they're like oh I wish I played I wish I kept playing piano you know what I mean (laughs) because it's just like people people love that like sing-along like fun experience you know and and to be able to like have that like I don't know to be able to connect with people through a song is, you know, it's it's a unique experience, I think. You know, I can't speak for, for painters and artists of that kind because I don't do that, you know, but I imagine that there's some kind of connection with an audience too, but more probably through their own experience of like actually making that, creating the art, you know,
0: so... There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room This newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com.
3: I'm sitting here. I just have so many thoughts that are running through my... Mine, because you're right. If you're playing music with someone and you're actually with someone, then there's something very present about mm-hmm. that. Um, and if you are doing art, the way that it's appreciated is just is just different. Mm. And it's not quite the same. It's not like you're sitting there watching the person paint.
2: Right. Although that'd be kind of cool. Although I don't know how long that would take. <laughs>
3: yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But I, I do think you know you hit on something, which is this. Um, this appreciation that really anyone can have for music that it doesn't we don't have to all go you went to berkeley
2: Mm -hmm.
3: we don't all have to go to berkeley to have an appreciation for music we can
2: of course not
3: we can sing in the shower we can go to mass we can go to a pub and listen to a band i mean we can really listen to it in whatever way makes sense for us yeah
2: absolutely and i think um i think a lot of people think that music is you know what we hear on the grammys or maybe what we hear the radio or, you know, this little like kind of 1% of the music business thing that that's that's music, you know, But, but there's really a giant amount of music out there, especially locally. You know, I come from like playing a lot of, you know, I like to, I've met a lot of like local musicians, both in Maine and in Massachusetts, you know, that, you know, they do what I do. They play the pubs, they play a few nice gigs that open for, you know, a good artist or something like that. And then, you know, they have a really good show and then they're back, you know, playing, you know, some pub or some bar, you know, again the next night and, you know, you're doing your thing. And I think like, you know, if people, you know, take a little bit more time to, to, to look, you know, go go and see something local, go see like what the, the your local scene has to offer. Because there's so many like talented people and songwriters and people that are working on their craft that... That's their that's their that's their only outlet right now. But that doesn't mean that they're not you know worthy of being heard, kind of a thing, you know. So I like trying to get the word out to go go see go see who's playing, you know, at your local spots or whatever.
3: Well, I'd like to hear what you are going to play for us right now because it sounds like maybe you can tempt some people who are going to listen to <laughs> your song to come out and yeah. listen to you play in sure. the Portland area or even maybe other parts of the Northeast, because I know that you're out and about quite a lot. So sure. what are you going to play for us?
2: I figured that I would do, like, the one song I've written so far that has to do with Maine. You know, we're on the Maine show here. So um, this is a song I wrote recently. Um, it's about, it's called Pine Street, which just so happens to be the Pine Street over in the West End. And, I, you know, I, I write a lot of love songs. I, I kind of write what I feel, you know, so uh, there might be a certain spot place or certain spot or certain word that kind of like jumps into my head and I tend to just think of a story that I've experienced or something like that so Pine Street's sort of a love song about falling in love in Maine and never wanting that to you know end or wanting I guess wanting to relive that love all over again.
4: Walking hand in hand, the leaf dance through our feet What I wouldn't give to, fall in love on Pine Street again And if I was your baby, I would not forget the little things you do to. Keep my heart full of love I never told you that I loved you enough And if I had a chance to do it over There were words that I would never say again Well, I was never good at telling you I loved you but you believe that I can be a better man And coffee shops and cafes Making love on Sundays Walking through the old port. Never knew I could have it so good it's So good If I have a chance to do it over, there are words that I would say again and again. But well, I was never good at telling you I love you. Just know that I've been trying to be a better man. 136 miles of separation So many lonely nights that get me down And you can't keep a heart so full of love from shining The road too long to keep me from getting back to town
3: And that was really great as I was listening. It was, um, you know, it's this interesting thing that always happens with me and probably happens with lots of people where there's, some, there's like a bypass. You know, you're not intellectualizing what's going on. You're just listening to the music. You're just there's something that is very – it just made me happy. The song made me really happy.
2: <laughs> well, I'm glad. Um, I think, you know, I think as, you know, we just kind of exchanged off the air here. It was like, you know um, – you could tell that I was feeling happy or whatever. You you know sort of exchange through the my body language maybe, but yeah, for me like, I'm, you know when I write when I sing and perform my own songs, I mean, it's, I write what I feel, so it's probably natural that it comes across that way. I guess just because they're the you know it's me expressing, it's probably me in my most vulnerable, sensitive state. Just because like. I have a hard time writing about, uh, you know, objects like an apple, you know, like making art, making an apple like a lyrical song about that or something. You know what I mean? I find it I find it amazing. I mean, there are songwriters that can just write about anything and they write really good songs. And, you know, I kind of wish I could do that. Or maybe I just wish I had the patience to, to do that. But for me, it's always just easier if it just like. Something that I feel or or think about, and yeah, I'm I'm sort of in my element when I'm performing my songs. I guess
3: Kelly Clinton, who's one of the producers for the radio show, and is also now the managing editor for Maine Magazine, she moved up here, um, you know, about 15 months ago mm-hmm. or so. And at the at that time, you had to shift with her. You were both based in Massachusetts, yeah. and she decided to come up here and take this job, a great opportunity for her. And you had to make that shift too. Yeah. What was that like to leave a place that you were familiar with and the music scene that you were familiar with to try to build a new life in Portland?
2: Well, it was both frightening and exciting at the same time. I mean, Kelly and I have always, my lovely fiance Kelly and I have always, uh, you know, talked about you know, trying to live somewhere else. And Kel's the adventure type, you know, I'm sort of like the practical, like, wait, we have to have a job. Blah, blah. And, uh, you know, she gets me out of my shell a little bit, which is great. So for for me, I've been, you know, teaching and and performing and have my whole, you know, have a really pretty extensive network of, of students in, in gigs in Massachusetts. It's where my family is and where my brother plays and blah, 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 and all that stuff. But so coming to a new place was kind of scary for me because I'd have to basically start over, you know. But Kel, Kel was basically starting her career, and and she has supported me doing my thing, and and I would definitely support her doing her her job. So for me, is we weren't moving too far away, you know, I could sort of sustain the message the commute to Massachusetts thing uh, until I was able to, you know, until I'm able to be up here full time. But for me, it's it's you know. We're young, and it's a chance for us to, to meet new people and experience a new place, and that can only be good for a songwriter, I think, you know? So, um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a, definitely an adventure, and, you know, we're settling into Maine. I, I love living in Maine. Portland, Portland has, been, has exceeded my expectations. I had been to Portland one time before moving here, and that was for like a Mumford & Sons concert on the Eastern Prom. And so I literally came here and like went to the Eastern Prom and then like left. So I really didn't even know that like the rest of it existed. So um, getting to live here has been definitely a, a joy for me.
3: My daughter Abby was at that concert. So oh, yeah? it's funny at the number of intersections that occur as a result of music. The number I wish of they would
2: do more. That was like such a cool show. You know, it was such like a unique show too. I mean, they did the whole festival, long day festival, and that setting, the backdrop of the bay behind a stage is just like crazy. So yeah, that was a lot of fun.
3: Well, we'll put that intention out there into the universe and yeah. see what see what happens as a result yeah. of you saying that. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's gonna be the right person. I mean, like, it has to be the right act. You know, I don't think like you know, I don't know, I don't know if you want like, I don't know. You don't want the, you want you don't want the wrong band there. <laughs> I think that might upset some people. <laughs> But I thought they were a good fit. I agree. Then again, they did have like the Dropkick Murphys play that day too, so they had a quite a mixture of yeah, that's, bands that's on that bill. That's
3: pretty <laughs> actually. Don't, aren't the Dropkick Murphys? Don't they have a like a Red Sox connection? Yeah, like a Massachusetts connection. Yeah, they're, like, so. they're like the
2: unofficial band of the Boston sports teams.
3: <laughs> so we're we're just we're just continuing this main Massachusetts thing that's been around for a long time. Yeah, I think so. That's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to be playing at the Kenny Munkport Festival. Yep. Yeah, uh, June eighth.
2: Yep, excited to be back for that.
3: Tell me about that.
2: Um, well, I did it last year for the first time. Um, I played at one of their their parties, and this year I'm playing at the opening party. I suppose like the 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 party on Monday, and you know I got to experience the Kennebunkport Festival for the first time last year, and it was it was really cool. I mean, it was very um, you know the festival supports. Artists, chefs, musicians, you know, it's like this whole, like, conglomerate of, of just really good art and food and music that Maine has to offer, and especially in a setting like Kennebunkport, which is so beautiful and peaceful and serene, and and, and I feel right at home because it's that harbor, it's the boats, it's, you know, it reminds me of home, so um, it was definitely, you know, I've gotten to spend a little bit of extra time in Kennebunkport, and it's it's definitely... A cool little place to to be able to have a festival that's for sure
3: what is it like to um be engaged to a person who also works with words but works with words really from a just a writing standpoint so you're a songwriter sure she's a writer writer and an editor mm-hmm. what how does that collaboration or partnership or just even well how does that work
2: well anytime i need one of my bios to be edited. I know who to go to. Um, When it comes to writing lyrics, I mean, I am not a patient person. I don't go through a draft process. I sort of, I open the computer screen and, you know, I have songs that are unfinished. I just haven't gone back to them. You know, for me, it's like it has to, like, hit me in the moment to, like, finish it. Otherwise, I just leave, you know, which probably would drive Kel crazy if she were, you know, she was the one writing it because she would probably go through draft after draft. You know, as, a, as an editor, you kind of, you're trained to just like try different things, you know, and I'm just, I've never been a lyric, a lyrical guy, you know, for, for, mute, for my just listening to, to, you know, growing up as a fan of different people, I never was, I never heard the words, you know, I was a big Dave Matthews fan. I didn't care about the words. I just loved the music and I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. I, Barely know what Eddie Vedder says half the time. I don't think anybody really knows what half the time what he says. But he's a he's a beautiful lyricist too. And you know, it's only since I've gotten into songwriting that I've actually started paying attention to it. And then you start to you know find your own voice and ser- sort of try to figure out what you would say and how you come want to come across. And for me, it's like I have to if I don't believe in the words, I can't, I can't you know, I don't want to commit to it. You know, so I kind of just wait for it to happen and then hopefully uh, it's good
3: (laughs) well i would agree with you i I know one of the reasons that kelly has uh, made her work with the radio show so successful is that she's very much about getting things done Mm. and you know she's got her checklists and she makes sure the people are scheduled and she's great at connecting with people so it interests me to this is not the first time that i've heard somebody say that she's adventuresome Mm. That's just an interesting thing, that we can all be so complex as human beings, that we can be really good at getting things done, but we also can adventure and create a new life in Portland.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, with Kel, you know, she's traveled the world, and, um, you know, we've gone, we, we go to Costa Rica. It's like one of our most, it's one of our favorite places. Costa Rica is the most beautiful, peaceful place ever <laughs> you know it's like i've never like felt so relaxed going there it's like no tv i bring my guitar i just like hang out we just sit on the beach and you know being able to you know ha- have someone in your life that pushes you you know pushes you a little bit um to, to try new things and experience new things you know it's gonna be healthy right It's it's like a healthy way to live i think
3: i absolutely agree Sam, I know people can listen to you at the Kenny Bunkport Festival mm-hmm. on June 8th. And where else can they find out about the work that you do, the music that you play, and where you'll be um, playing for the community?
2: Um, my website, samchasemusic.com. That's basically where I post all my shows and you know um, any updates and news and stuff like that. Also, social media is really um, big for me just in terms of, letting people know you know on a more current basis day-to-day basis um you can find me on on facebook which is sam chase music on facebook um those are basically the two meccas of music for me
3: (laughs) well i really appreciate your starting the day with us here yeah thanks for having me it's been a really great experience Uh, we've been speaking with sam chase who's a guitarist drummer and award-winning singer-songwriter who um, is originally from the south shore of Massachusetts, now making his home in Portland, Maine. We really appreciate your being here.
2: I enjoyed it. Thanks, Lisa.
3: You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 187, Music Mastery. Our guests have included Bob Ludwig and Sam Chase. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show sign up for our e-newsletter and like our love Maine radio facebook page follow me on twitter and see my running travel food and wellness photos as bountiful one on instagram we'd love to hear from you so please let us know what you think of love Maine radio we welcome your suggestions for future shows also let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here we are privileged that they enable us to bring love main radio to you each week this is dr lisa belisle I hope that you have enjoyed our Music Mastery show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton, and our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page Or go to www.LoveMainRadio.com for details.